HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking about super weeds. Uh, my guest is H. Claire Brown, a senior staff writer for The Counter. Her work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The Intercept, and she has won awards from the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing uh, from the New York Press Club, the Newswomen's Club of New York, and others. She is a North Carolina native. Uh, she now lives in Brooklyn. And uh, the reason she's on the show today is she published a really um, kind of mind-boggling um, article in the New York Times Sunday Magazine on August 18th, 2021. That was just about a month ago. Uh, it was called The Attack of the Superweeds, and she's here today to talk about that article. Um, so, Claire, what, what started you off uh, in pursuing the science of superweeds? Because this, I mean, I actually did a show about superweeds back in, I looked at my archive in 2012 with a guy named Chuck Benbrook, who has subsequently been quite... Um, I don't know, uh, dismissed as a scientist somehow, but uh, he was clearly quite prescient on this particular topic. So so what got you going on it? You know, it, it's funny you bring up 2012 because the term superweeds has been floating around pretty much as long as there have been genetically modified organisms. It was one of these really intense concerns that folks had when these um, the, when the technology was first rolled out was that, mm -hmm. you know, the crops would mate with the weeds and make these <laughs> frankenweeds or superweeds. And so weed scientists actually hate the term superweeds as a result because all of this misinformation was floating around for so long about the science and about what could possibly happen. Right. And so I think it was 2016, the weed scientists got together and they were like, okay, we can't stop the use of this word superweed, so we might as well give it our own definition. And they came up with right. a new definition, which is, you know, weeds that have evolved resistance to herbicides, uh, 
because farmers use the same management technique over and over again. So I had kind of been keeping tabs on the issue for a long time. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of controversy about uh, Monsanto, which is now Bayer's rollout of this new uh, herbicide-resistant trait to dicamba, because dicamba caused um, drift um, and, and damaged kind of neighboring crops. And so there was already this outcry among the neighbors of people who were using the product. And then when I saw scientists confirm weed resistance to dicamba, it really felt like kind of a turning point for this technology that has, you know, had a really strong run, a whole generation of everyone using these GMO crops. And then all of a sudden, whoop, the brand new one doesn't work anymore. Right. I mean, it's so interesting to me because, of course, the first, the reason they started using dicamba again, because that's an old herbicide, but the reason they started using it again was because plants became round or weeds became resistant to Roundup or glyphosate, which has, of course, you know, been the premier weed or herbicide for since the 1990s, which is, I believe, when it was developed initially. Um, so, so can you kind of take us through a little bit of the evolution of that herbicide resistance in U.S. agriculture? Um, kind of starting with Roundup. I mean, I think they thought Roundup was going to be the last herbicide they were ever going to need. And obviously, having had to go back to other ones like Dicamba and 2,4-D and I'm sure others, um, that hasn't been the case. So, so what has actually happened since the 1990s? Yeah. So when Roundup came out, it was billed as this really amazing herbicide. It worked really well. It um, had kind of a minimal impact on the surrounding environment. It broke down very quickly in the soil. Um, The the mode of action that it used was something that a lot of scientists thought weeds would not develop resistance to. Um, And so it came out and it it was working amazingly well on weeds in lawns. And, And then a few years later, Monsanto uh, developed the, the the real major selling technology, which is seeds that were engineered to resist Roundup. And they did right. that in cotton, corn, and soy. And over the course of 10 or 15 years, it got to the point that 96% of all soybean acreage in the U.S. is planted with Roundup-ready seeds. Uh-huh. And so what happened is that farmers would just spray only Roundup on their fields, and it would work great at first. And then starting really in the early 2000s in Georgia, which is really, you know, only about six or seven years after this technology was introduced, uh, it suddenly stopped working. Um, It stopped working in cotton fields first with this weed, Uh Palmer amaranth, um, which can grow to be five or six feet tall. And farmers would tell stories of, you know, driving to church and looking out at their fields that, you know, they, they'd been spraying this miracle herbicide. They had expected, you know, they'd been expecting it to work really, really well. And they would see, you know, this weed and, and, and this weed is so prolific and so threatening that they would like pull over and jump out of the car and go hand pull it oh my God. because <laughs> it's so threatening. And, and so yeah. this Roundup resistant Palmer amaranth kind of started to spread and it it was all over the southeast pretty soon and then you know it had all of these interesting ways that it would hitch rise from one part of the country to another so it mm. would kind of hide away in cotton holes and um 
ride up in trucks in the form of animal feed and then the cows would eat it and the seeds would not break down and then the manure uh it would it would subsequently sprout out of the manure and all of a sudden it was in the midwest um and so it developed all these kind of amazing mechanisms for hopping from place to place and at the same time farmers were still spraying roundup on everything and so these uh these these weeds just kept evolving independently all over the country Incredible. And so, um, well, let's talk for a minute about, um, because I I mean, I want to just say one thing about glyphosate and that is when, when it first was started being marketed, um, it, it was kind of, it was, if I'm not mistaken, cheaper than almost all the other herbicides on the market. And supposedly it was less toxic. And that, as I understand it, was one of its chief selling points. Um, did you find that to be true in your research that Roundup was like, or glyphosate, we should, let's call it what it is. Um, it was, was supposed to be like the least, um, you you know, the least uh, devastating to uh, man and, and soil uh, as compared to other things like dicamba or 2,4-D or w- whatever the other ones are. I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, th- there are other herbicides that are extremely toxic to humans. There's one called Paraquat, where oh, yeah. you can't even enter the field for 24 hours. Um, you know, there was a big controversy with atrazine a while back about oh, right. the effects in frogs. And, you know, we really didn't see a lot of that with glyphosate, um, right. both in terms of environmental and human health impacts. Now, of course, there's a huge issue now with, with particularly gardeners who sprayed it, um, claiming that they um, developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and that there's a link between that and glyphosate. Um, Bear, which acquired Monsanto, still denies that there's any causation there whatsoever, but there have been juries that found on behalf of the plaintiffs causing, you know, billions and billions of dollars in damages that Bear has since had to pay out. Oh, yeah. And that happened right after they acquired Monsanto. I thought to myself when I saw that sale go through, like, were you not paying attention to that, <laughs> to what was going on? Because I mean, those those class action suits had been, you know, sort of uh, building momentum over the course of two or three years at least before uh, Bayer bought Monsanto, um, and and they're now having, if I'm not mistaken, they're having to actually phase out glyphosate. Am I right? Isn't that true? Um, they're phasing out glyphosate in the, the lawn and garden market. They're ah. keeping it in uh, the row crop market, but there are also, you know, certain co- countries are starting to phase it out. So I think Mexico has announced plans. I think Germany. I think Europe. Plans. I think I think a lot of the EU uh, never adopted glyphosate, actually, because there were so many controversial uh, studies about whether or not it was uh, going to be toxic, but let's talk a little bit more about uh, about this Palmer amaranth, which uh, I, I love that it's called pigweed. <laughs> it's, like it's it's very it's obviously very piggish. Um, but besides pigweed, are there other plants as well that are implicated in uh, herbicide resistance that are say as um, aggressive as Palmer amaranth? Yeah, so so it varies from region to region. You know, certain mm-hmm. certain weeds thrive in, in different areas. In Australia, um, Australia actually saw Roundup resistance before anywhere in the U.S. did because they have a really? plant called rigid ryegrass, um, and uh-huh. that evolved resistance kind of 
a few years there. The, the kind of curve in Australia is a few years ahead of the, the U.S. curve. So I see. Um, that's where they first realized that, you know, maybe the ryegrass has evolved resistance to herbicides that haven't been invented yet. We're starting to see that in the U.S. now. Um, there's there's other weeds of, of concern, depending on what part of the country. There's the one in Kansas that's that's um, the companion wheat to Palmer amaranth is called kosha. And mm-hmm. that one's kind of interesting because it grows and then it kind of breaks out of the ground and turns into a tumbleweed. And so all those images you think of when you think about the West, those tumbleweeds yeah. are now, some of them are herbicide resistant. And of course, they can just kind of roll across a field and deposit their seeds all along the way. So they're very good at spreading the, the resistance traits as well. Fascinating. So can you give us a little bit, I know it's complex, but I, I mean, you did such a great job of, of, you know, taking this apart in your article. I want people to understand what the, the astonishing speed with which these plants and particularly the Palmer amaranth are able to develop resistance to a whole uh, panoply of herbicides. And so if you could just explain some of the biology, you had a great analogy of locks and keys, um, which I thought was very helpful in trying to imagine this. Um, Tell us what is actually happening in the plants. Yeah. So an herbicide targets a specific part of the plant. So glyphosate disrupts an enzyme that create that that creates an amino acid that is necessary for growth. Or um, paraquat can cause the a plant to leak out water so it doesn't have enough to survive. And so they oh. all target these different parts within a plant cell. So uh-huh. when a plant evolves glyphosate resistance, scientists have hypothesized that what it does is it just creates a bunch of copies of the gene that glyphosate targets. So if I'm glyphosate and there's three droplets of me entering the, the plant cell wall and 10 genes I'm targeting, I'm going to miss seven of those. Ah. With other types of resistance, the target site literally changes shape as a plant evolves. So that's where the lock and key scenario comes in place. If you imagine that paraquat is shaped like a certain key and it fits in a lock to kill the plant, uh-huh. um, what happens with resistance is that the shape of the lock literally changes. Right. What's interesting is that what's happening now is that plants are developing enzymes within the cells that can kind of rush to wherever the herbicide enters the cell and break it down. What that means is that uh, this form of resistance kind of is like adding a, adding a doorman in front of that door with all of the locks. You just, that you can't even get the key into the door because the, the enzymes will break down whatever herbicide that tries to enter. Even herbicides that it has never encountered or that, what I thought was really interesting is that there was like almost some sort of a memory, like the plant, you know, three generations ago might've gotten atrazine. um, And then three generations later, you're using a different herbicide, but it still remembers the atrazine and it can still be resistant to that. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is you point out that some of these, like the Palmer amaranth is now resistant to uh, chemicals that it has never actually been exposed to even. Can you explain a little bit about that? So this, this all came from an interesting study out of Kansas that was published this past January. And 
what they found was that uh, Kansas State University had a test plot. So they knew uh, with a really uh, high degree of detail everything that had ever been sprayed on this test plot. So right. the common stuff, 2,4-D, atrazine had been sprayed. And they could pinpoint like, okay, atrazine was sprayed here in 1996. I'm making this up. But they had this yeah. really complex history of the plot. And what they found was a kind of a flush of Palmer amaranth growing in this plot that wasn't dying when they were trying to spray it to get rid of it, to, to do whatever experiment they were going to do next. And they were like, wow, this is really interesting because we know this plot isn't being sprayed every year. So what they uh. discovered was that this Palmer amaranth had been sprayed with basically just two herbicides many, many years ago. And they hypothesized that it developed this type of resistance, which is called metabolic resistance. This is the kind that can break down the enzymes as mm -hmm. soon as they enter the cell wall. And so this specific Palmer amaranth patch had been exposed generations ago to these very common herbicides. And instead of evolving what's called the target site resistance or changing the locks, they had evolved this kind of super resistance where they were able to break down herbicides they had never seen before. That was the wow. first time uh, this type of resistance had been identified in Palmer amaranth in the U.S. And yeah. that was a pretty huge development. That is huge. I mean, and it's also terrifying. Um, but let's let's um, most of the of the uh, plants that are, uh, or most of the, the the types of crops that are seeing the bulk of herbicide resistant weeds are are the genetically modified crops like corn, soy, cotton. Um, what else is rice genetically modified? I can't remember. I feel, I feel like I saw that somewhere, but anyway, it doesn't matter. It's mostly corn and soy, which of course are, has huge implications for, you know, the livestock market as well as just everyday grocery manufacturing that uses tons of high fructose corn syrup and soybeans. So what, what did your research suggest uh, is the future for the people who are growing these genetically modified corn and soy crops? Like, what does this mean for them? Yeah, there's there's this kind of interesting disconnect where it's it's all of these weed scientists really sounding the alarm bells and and asking folks to to change their management strategies and and a lot of farmers who are, you know, this it's still um, the current method is still working for now and and I think they're encountering a lot of resistance to change. But what what my reporting um, found was that. Um, there's a lot of hope among farmers that the chemical companies will just kind of come up with the next silver bullet solution. So what they're doing now is they're stacking genetic modification traits so that you can spray glyphosate and dicamba and glufosinate and 2,4-D all in a soybean plant in hopes that the plant will survive all of those herbicides, uh, <laughs> but the uh, but the but the weeds will die, right? So if yeah. if a weed doesn't die from the glyphosate, then the hope is that it will die from other things. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of interest in so-called precision agriculture. So these solutions where you fly a drone over a field and it, you know, has 
basically facial recognition technology for weeds and it can, you know, hyper target a specific plant. Uh Um, There's a lot of interest in, you know, data collection and harnessing the power of AI to figure out how to plant certain fields in certain ways. Um, There's a lot of hope that that someone will be able to create kind of a gene drive technology that introduces uh, sterile plants into a population and contributes to a population crash among weeds. But really, none of those solutions are are ready for prime time. And so what what, uh, weed scientists are advocating right now is that uh, farmers diversify their weed management strategies. Um, And and that gets really expensive, right? If you're hand pulling weeds, if you are um, changing the way that you plant in order to choke out weeds, if you're planting cover crops, a lot of this stuff is um, hard to implement. It's expensive to implement, and it's kind of as yet unproven. So it's a little bit of a tough sell for a farmer who's seeing, you know, a little bit more herbicide resistance every year, but hasn't yet reached the tipping point where a pigweed is choking out their entire crop. Yeah, right. And are there other types of crops that are being uh, affected by herbicide resistance to the same degree as uh, soy, cotton and corn? Or, or is it really primarily just those GMO crops? It's largely within the GMO crops right now. Uh, someone made the interesting point to me that, uh, the reason organic food is so expensive is that the weed management is so much more difficult because organic farmers are not using genetically modified crops and are therefore kind of hung on to this diversified weed management approach. Mm -hmm. The joke is always, if something worked well this year, do something different next year. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) it's, it's less of an issue in organic systems simply because they haven't been spraying the same thing every single year for 30 years. Right. I think the concern is that, you know, weeds are getting stronger everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, weeds, like, as you pointed out at the beginning, you know, the way uh, weeds hitch a ride on other products. I mean, birds are going to eat those seeds and they're, those are going to be in their droppings as they fly across the country. I mean, you know, and that's going to hit every farm no matter what they're growing, you know, so it, it does, it's, it's very easy for these, um, for these weeds to spread around without, um, you know, without, I don't know. I mean, there's really no way of controlling that, I would imagine. Um, But we're going to take a very short break here for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back. Uh, Please stay tuned for more with uh, Clara Brown from The Counter talking about super weeds. Um, Yeah, great. You're doing great. I'm doing great. I'm feeling good about this show. I love everything. We're having fun. (laughs) Be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, Get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. 
<laughs> so I want to talk about something that you brought up uh, a little bit earlier, and that is um, the impact of some of like when we were talking about why glyphosate was so easy to sell to farmers because they thought, well, this has less of an impact on human health. And, you know, you pointed out that atrazine has an impact on developing fetuses and there are other ones that have the same kind of impact. Paraquat, I know, uh, is implicated in causing Parkinson's disease and uh, many of these other herbicides and other farm chems probably have plenty of other uh, impacts that we're not going to talk about right now. But but as these companies, uh, you know, suggest that you keep, as they, as they change up their seed structures and they say, okay, well now you can, your plant's going to be resistant to four of these herbicides. So have at it, boys and girls, you know, like just spray the, the crap out of this stuff and, and, you know, you'll get your crop in, uh, with the volume that you're looking for. What, what are the implications for human health with this? I mean, has, are there any studies on that, for example? Like, Let's talk, you know, let's talk a little bit about some of these diseases like the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from glyphosate, the paraquat uh, causing Parkinson's. Um, you know, what else have we got on the table with this stuff? Um, I've, I, I looked into that a lot less than I did about the environmental impact for this piece, mm -hmm. but I, I do know there have been some rumblings about linking dicamba to certain diseases. Again, it's it's only been since... 2016 that it's been spread so widely. Um, right. So, so I, I really have no data on that. Um, you know, I, I think there's kind of a lot of knee jerk concern with folks about just spraying lots of herbicides in general. Um, but I really have no idea. My knee is jerking, health. Claire. My <laughs> knee is totally jerking. I mean, I can hardly control it. I, I you know, the idea that we're loading up the soil. Um, and therefore, the groundwater, and you know, never mind the the flora, the the attendant flora and fauna that live around farms. I mean, you know, it's like there has to be some long term impacts that we are, you know, that that they have yet to uh, either study or reveal, even if they have studied it. And my guess is that they've studied it just the way Exxon knew perfectly well fifty years ago what climate change was going to do, uh, and uh, decided to keep on doubling down on you know funding fossil fuel and, and making politicians do what they want. So, you know, I don't think seed companies are any different with that, right? You know, yeah, I, I, I really have, I have no, I have no data that's not, you know, been made public on that. But, you know, I, I think beyond the, the human health effects, the environmental effects are super well documented, particularly with the Canva. Um, you know, we've, we've got folks that felt, first of all, felt pressured to buy the product, not because they wanted to, but because they were worried if their neighbors bought the dicamba-resistant soybeans, that that dicamba would uh, vaporize and drift onto their fields, which now, of course, we know happened in spades. Oh, it um, sure did. You know, we yep. know that dicamba can damage wildlife. There was a huge dicamba settlement uh, about uh, damage to a peach orchard. Uh, you know, those those trees take years and years to mature, and, and yes. it can take just a season or two of your neighbor spraying dicamba to to cause real problems. And so, you know, human health effects aside, there's there's extremely well documented evidence that that herbicides like dicamba come with a whole host of you know externalities that that is not something that I think we've really seen EPA deal with in a meaningful way or you know it's it's such a new issue that I think you know there's there's a lot of struggle in agricultural communities about how to handle it. 
Absolutely. What, I, well, you know, since you did a little more digging in the environmental impacts, um, what else are we seeing? Are we seeing uh, impacts on wildlife or, uh, or is this part of what causes the dead zone, for example, in, uh, you know, waterways? Or is that primarily fertilizer runoff, not so much the herbicides? Yeah. So the, the, the dead zones is primarily fertilizer runoff. Of course, it's all part of the same kind of monocropping system. Folks will argue, you know, changing management practices to create healthier soil will reduce runoff, will reduce the need for herbicides. Um, There's a lot of folks out there that will, that will advocate for inverting the system entirely. But again, yeah, mostly with dicamba, it's just been its tendency to drift from field to field and just kind of damage anything in its wake. It's, it's a broad, it's a broadly effective herbicide. Some, some herbicides only work on, you know, X tree family or X leaf family. Um, Mm -hmm. We've seen dicamba have the capacity to damage quite a lot of, of neighboring trees. I've seen less research on wildlife though. I know folks are looking into it. Right, right. And and so what what other I mean like okay, so the the seed companies are are changing up the way they create their seed packages as it were. I mean as you've pointed out they're stacking up different uh, genetic traits in order to become more um robust against using certain all, all these different uh herbicides. But what 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 are the other strategies uh that farmers might find for coping with uh resistance. I mean, you, for example, brought up the idea of lasers, like pointing lasers at weeds and vaporizing them, I guess, and, or, or burning over fields. Um, what, you know, what else, what else is on the plate for these farmers? Like, what are they going to do if they can't use these herbicides? Yeah. So in Australia, where they have the the ryegrass that's been resistant for a little bit longer, they're really focused on getting rid of the weed seeds at the end of every season so they don't have huh. a chance to sprout. And what that means is they gather the uh, the, the seeds and some you know crop refuse and, and literally set fire to it and kind of have this slow burn down each row to wow. get rid of the weed seeds. Um, weed seed control came up in a lot of conversations. It's like, you know, you understand that these weeds are going to be here and you try to make it so that fewer, fewer can sprout next year. Mm-hmm. Um, Darren Nicolette, the farmer who was kind of the center of the piece, has started yeah. planting his soybeans closer together so that they create a canopy earlier in the season and just choke out the weeds, basically hmm. just outcompete them. He's doing a ton of kind of little low-tech fixes like that, planting cover crops, waiting until um, the soybeans have sprouted in order to before he sprays glyphosate. Um, you know, there's a lot of little things he's been able to do with the time. Um, but part of that is because he's willing to experiment and, and, you know, he's very fastidious with the spreadsheets that he keeps and the techniques that he uses. And, you know, he was the first to admit his neighbors are in their sixties and looking at retirement and, and are kind of, you know, not really thinking about dealing with it. They kind of see it as an issue for the next generation to handle, wow. um, and are just sort of saying, you know, I don't, I don't envy you. I respect you for dealing with this, but, um, you know, I'm going to keep doing the things I'm. The, the way that I've done them for a couple more years. Wow. So if the weeds are evolving faster than science can keep up um, 
and you pointed out that weeds are evolving sort of in a five year, say, say it takes 10 years for a new chemical to come down the pipeline. Um, but the weeds are evolving at more of a five year cycle race. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't augur well for science. So wh- how do you think, uh, you know, as somebody who covers a lot of agricultural issues, how do you think this will end up changing the agricultural model that we have pursued for the last, you know, 45 years or so? You know, I really wanted a very clean answer to that question. <laughs> I didn't get one. That's what I want. The, what do you mean? You don't have that? <laughs> the, the most concrete uh, answer I got was that food has gotten more expensive and it will continue to get more expensive. Mm-hmm. But because the pricing of food is so complex, we may not attribute rises in food prices to rises in costs of weed management. Um, right. But th- there's more kind of concrete um, impacts to uh weed scientists are starting to say that that farmers may have to just shift into different crops. You know, there may come a time when you just can't grow soybeans in certain parts of Kansas anymore because you can't outcompete the weeds. Right. Um, I know I heard, I've heard anecdotes of a couple of farmers who have just gone out of business uh, because they didn't want to deal with the weeds. Um, I imagine wow. the hydroponic people will position that those systems as a way to avoid uh, using herbicides, you know, I have, uh, I don't think we've seen evidence that hydroponic systems can come anywhere close to replacing, uh, field agriculture at this point, but I'm sure someone will make that case. Um, and you know, the, the kind of most out of the box (laughs) suggestion that, that was posed to me was just turning Palmer amaranth into, uh, a food crop. And the, the hilarious point that the weed scientists make was, of course, as soon as you try to turn it into a crop, it it stops growing nearly as well. (laughs) (laughs) Too many interventions. (laughs) Totally. Totally. (laughs) Too funny. But you know, it could be, I mean, it could be a a hemp like uh, substitute. I mean, it's so stupid that we don't grow more hemp than we do, although it's finally been legalized, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's probably got a lot of similar qualities, uh, I would imagine in terms of being potentially used for animal feed, uh, potentially used for fiber, potentially used for, you know, building materials in some way. I mean, you know, why not? Yeah. So, but what about, what if farmers just like, I'm just thinking outside of the box myself here. And of course I'm not a farmer. So, um, you know, I make this stuff up, but I, I'm, I'm curious, like, will it, I mean, I'm wondering, will it mean that we, that farmers will no longer be able to just grow one type of I guess what I'm really saying is, will this be the end of GMO crops, actually? Will there need to be a sort of a constant evolution of these of these seeds um, in the form of hybridization rather than uh, genetically modifying them that makes them uh, somehow be able to outcompete these weeds in a more robust way rather than having to use all these chemicals on them? Or will we just stop, as you just said, uh, growing, you know, soybeans in Kansas? I mean... I, I feel like agriculture will have to diversify to a certain extent uh, away from the commodity, giant commodity cropping that we're doing now or monocropping that we're doing now. What do you think? Yeah, I, I had the same set of questions going into this. I was wondering if if this onset of resistance would 
cause essentially a, a re-regionalization of the food system where we had, you know, smaller farms growing more different crops and having more people work on them. And, you know, maybe food is more expensive, but it's a very different place in the economy. And what I was told repeatedly was that GMO crops are here to stay. Glyphosate still works on lots and lots of weeds, just not these kind of specific marquee species that may be uh-huh. indicators, but that are still, um, you know, kind of at the at the forefront of weeds evolving resistance. And so again and again, what folks told me was we will basically evolve weed management strategies to fit the current system. So whether that's a kind of precision agriculture that Uh, keeps a closer eye using technology on existing fields or whether that looks like, you know, having to hire workers to hand weed and folding the cost into the cost of doing business. Um, Again, no one suggested to me that there was going to be a fundamental shift in the way uh, farming is done in the United States. Uh, but I'll be interested to see, you know, it's, it's, we're kind of reaching this moment where, um, people are just beginning to confront that this issue is here to stay. And I wonder if the answer will be the same five years from now. Yeah. Very good. Very good point. Uh, I don't think it will be. I I think a lot of things are going to change five years from now, because by that time we will be seeing a far accelerated rate of climate change and disruption. And uh, that, of course, is going to be, you know, really the ultimate game changer for everything, uh, whether it's uh, that the temperature is hotter or that the, you know, precipitation events are that much more, um, you know, powerful and destructive. It's, you know, or or that drought uh, becomes more widespread and more of an issue f- even for the Midwestern states. Um, those are all factors that we cannot possibly predict. Well, at least certainly you and I cannot. Um, I'm sure there are some scientists out there who's got a pretty good beat on what that stuff is going to is going to look like. But I mean, to just finish this up here, um, you know, you mentioned a minute ago that the cost of food could p- potentially rise. Um, ultimately, you know, like with with the various strategies that you suggested during the course of this interview, um, that that's going to pose quite an economic burden on farmers. And um, I, you know, I'm curious to see what your, or, you know, I'm curious about what your sort of take on how much um, that's going to drive people out of farming, for example, or, or change in farm, farming style so that that becomes more expensive and, and how much, uh, you know, maybe uh, the farm bill is going to end up rectifying some of those uh, economic problems. What's, what's your prediction on that? Yeah, so so I was talking to this this farmer Nicolette about you know how he decides when to just kind of give up on on weeds in a field, and he basically <laughs> yeah. has a spreadsheet where he puts in you know, and all of these things are always fluctuating, right? The cost of fertilizer, sure. the cost of seed, the cost of herbicides, and he basically just puts these numbers into the spreadsheet, and when it gets to a point where if it's going to be a perfect season and he still cannot break even, that is when he kind of decides, all right, I've got to let the Palmer go this time. So I was talking to oh, him a couple months oh. ago and, and he had, um, you know, sprayed a, a field and, and, you know, some Palmer amaranth came up and it was something like 90 acres that, um, that had this, 
this weed in it and he couldn't hand weed them. And, and the hand weeding crews that, that used to, um, you know, kind of freelance around Kansas are, are kind of gone because Roundup did such a good job of, of making them irrelevant for so long. Um, uh-huh. And the, the cost of hiring human beings to do that work would have just been prohibitively high. And so I think sure. we're just going to see an increasing number of of people facing these kind of impossible equations where they get to the point where weed management costs more than you can sell corn at market for. And again, farmers already don't break even on every crop every year. And it's kind of this sure. calculus every year to figure out how to make it work. Um, and, and I think, you know, Darren made it seem like some of his peers are, are just getting kind of tired and are seeing the writing on the wall a little bit. Now, whether, you know, there will be a hedge fund that comes in and just does all the farming or whether we have mm-hmm. a bunch of 10 acre farms, I have absolutely no idea. Mm, fascinating. And then the one thing, I mean, I, I'm going to wrap it up here because, you know, people's uh, attention span, unfortunately, doesn't really extend much beyond 35 or 40 minutes. But, um, but I would think that soil health and regenerative soil practices, uh, rebuilding topsoil, um, making it sort of more robust uh, in, you know, some sort of biological way may also be a factor that comes more into play than it certainly does now. I mean, right now, everybody, as you said at the beginning of the show, is completely wedded to using their uh, whatever chemical means, you know, agrichems that they that they've got at their disposal, rather than doing what can be more expensive and harder work uh, of rebuilding soil. Um, but that's another that's another topic for another conversation. Yeah, so, and just right? to bring that back, I mean, yeah. Darren has gone no till, which is um, a, a strategy that farmers use where they do not till their their mm-hmm. soil, um, which does mean they do more chemical inputs, but they're not turning the soil over every year to get rid of the weeds. And so, what he's seen is, you know, a couple of his neighbors, the herbicide stopped working, and he tills again. Right. Uh-huh. And that is bad for soil health because tilling is what led to the dust bowl in yep. Kansas in the 20s. Yep. And so it's kind of this double bind where you make your soil healthier and weeds also love healthy soil. I heard the phrase <laughs> fertilizing the weeds a bunch of times yeah. because the weeds get worse after you after you fertilize your land. And so it's it's really a double, triple, quadruple bind that folks are in. Well, I guess we'll be staying tuned to uh, your next piece. What are you working on now? Uh, I am working on a couple of different things that I cannot share just yet. Oh, I see. Ooh, how exciting. Um, (laughs) Well, keep me posted because, I mean, you're a terrific interviewer. I really enjoy the conversations we've had. This is, I think, your second time on my show, right? I think Um, so. Yeah. And I've, I've always really, I mean, both times have been outstanding and your piece that the super weeds piece was really, really excellent folks. If you want to go back and read Claire's work, um, the attack of the super weeds is in the Sunday times magazine. I think it was August 18th. Is that right? Yeah, that's um, right. August eighteenth, twenty twenty. Uh, really fascinating, very in depth, and very and geeky, like really geeky, <laughs> which I, of course, really enjoy. <laughs> Even if I don't understand absolutely everything I'm reading, I loved it. So, congratulations on that, and thank you so so much for joining me today, Claire. I really appreciate your time, um, and I hope you'll be back soon. Great. Well, well I'll thanks be in for touch. having me. It's you a pleasure. Betcha. Thank you. And that does it for us, folks. I uh, hope you managed to get through the whole uh, show. Thank you to my sponsors. And we'll see you next week uh, with more discussion about food, farming, agriculture, and, you know, the world. So long for now. 
What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.